traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. The origin of tonight's Twilight Zone begins with our writer, Charles Beaumont, and his story which he had published in If Magazine in 1954. That story features a main character called Richard Austin, and we meet him sat alone except for his wife Mag, who is sick in bed, struck down by a mystery illness. They are the last inhabitants of a futuristic metropolis built in Africa. But in order for that city to be built, mountains have been levelled, trees cut down, and what comes with that of course is the habitat of animals being destroyed, and also the displacement of the local people. In this story the people who come to this city to live and work are struck down by this illness, but our main character stays on. And it goes like this. He had stayed on to fight, and Mag would not leave without him. Now she was dying, and that was the end of it. Or, he turned slowly, was it? He walked out to the balcony. The forced air was soft and cool. It moved in little patches through the streets of the city. Mumbara, his city, the one he dreamed about, then planned and designed and pushed into existence. The place built to pamper 500,000 people. Empty now, and deserted as a giant churchyard. Dimly, he recognised the sound of the drums, with their slow, muffled rhythm. Directionless as always, seeming to come from everywhere and from nowhere, speaking to him, whispering. Now the Twilight Zone was a prestige show, and at times they would be very ambitious and try and pull off spaceships and aliens and different planets. But when it came to bringing this episode to the screen, can you pull off this city of the future and have it look good? And if you can't, can you change the story in such a way as to still have the essence, the atmosphere and the message? We often hear of writers doing a piece of work and having it altered by the studio or a producer or director, whoever it is, and feeling that their work was compromised. But in this case, with a story that was just too grand in its location to pull off on a TV show at the time, it was actually the writer himself, Charles Beaumont, who said that he could actually do it, he could scale it down and bring it to the small screen. The producer of the Twilight Zone book, Houghton, liked the story, but felt there was no sacrifice that could be made that would result in a final product that would retain the essence of that story. And Charles Beaumont said to Rod Serling, basically his point seems to be that the original story is right the way it is. Only we can't afford to do the original story and my ideas for revision are workable 
but not too exciting. He thinks there are too many concessions, too many watering downs, too little that is new and fresh. And we'll come back to that briefly in a moment, but in tonight's Twilight Zone, we meet not Richard Austin from the literary version and his wife Mag, but Alan Richards and his wife Doris. Not in some futuristic city in Africa, but in New York. And when Alan goes looking for his cufflink in his wife's jewellery box, he finds a few most unusual items. A human finger, a sacred death stone, a vulture's claw, baubles of a witch doctor. That's all these are to you? Souvenirs? Of course. Nothing else? Are you sure? Certainly, I'm sure. Well, then you won't mind if I dispose of them, will you? Alan, don't! Please don't! Please don't, Alan! Why please not? don't! Please don't! Why not? Please don't! Right now. Are there any more souvenirs? We aren't in Africa any longer. We're right here in New York. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is for weak people. Ignorant, uncivilized people who don't know any better. Not for you. Not for me. Doris, listen to me. We've done nothing wrong. We have nothing to fear. Least of all from a bunch of witch doctors 5,000 miles away. What are you afraid of? Africa. So Beaumont's solution is to have them come back from this metropolis and have the thing happen there rather than actually be there when it happens. But essentially the implication is the same, that a city has been built somewhere where it shouldn't. The city had grown, spreading its concrete and alloy fingers wider every day over the dark and feral country. Nothing could stop it. Mountains were stamped flat, Rivers were dammed off or drained or put elsewhere. The marshes were filled, the animals shot from the trees and then the trees cut down. And the big grey machines moved forward, gobbling up the jungle with their iron teeth, chewing it clean of its life and all its living things. Until it was no more. Leveled, smoothed as a highway is smoothed, its centuries choked between millions and millions of tons of hardened stone. The birth of a city. It had become the death of a world. And Richard Austin was its murderer. Welcome to the jungle. The carcass of a goat, a dead finger, a few bits of broken glass and stone, and Mr. Alan Richards, a modern man of a modern age hating with all his heart something in which he cannot believe, and preparing, although he doesn't know it, to take the longest walk of his life right down to the center of the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on December 1st, 1961. Written by Charles Beaumont and directed by William Claxton. We haven't seen William Claxton in the Twilight Zone since season one's episode, The Last Flight. So I didn't want to just go over the same information that I'd given about him in that show. So I went back to listen to it to see what I said. And wow, that was a rough lesson. Podcasters take note. Never go back and listen to your old shows. I like to think we've come on 
a fair bit since then, but in that episode I didn't really say much about William Claxton, so it's all fair game. So after coming back for season three, he then does two more episodes, and they are The Little People and I Sing the Body Electric. Born in 1914, Claxton began his career as an editor throughout the 1940s, but he gradually transitioned over to directing in the late 40s and early 50s. His first directing job was a film called Half Past Midnight, but if you look down his list of credits, it seems to be that television was where he was most prolific. He directed 57 episodes of Bonanza, 68 episodes of Little House on the Prairie, and several other TV shows here and there before he finally directed the Bonanza revival, Bonanza The Next Generation, in 1988, and he then passed away in 1996. I don't think there's a huge amount to say about Rod Sailing's opening narration. It's a blank backdrop and quite short and to the point, but there's still a little poetry in there. He describes Richards as hating with all his heart something that he cannot believe. It suggests that he won't allow himself to believe it, but deep down, there's enough fear to suggest that he does, but would never admit it. Probably very in line with how, even today, the most rational of people can still be very superstitious. Before we move on too far into the story, let's just briefly return to that wrangling to get this thing on screen. As we've heard, Buck Houghton felt that it would compromised the story too much to scale it down for television but Martin Grimes Jr. documents in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic that it was Rod Serling who talked Buck into it and Martin Grimes' words do suggest that it was actually on the table earlier than season 3 to be included in the Twilight Zone and it was then reconsidered for season 3 so 12 episodes into this season we get our first Charles Beaumont story. I can't really find anything in particular from Beaumont about the inspirations for it, but in the Twilight Zone Companion there is a general recollection about Beaumont from his friend, the writer William F. Nolan. And he says, One night I remember we had gone to a late night horror movie. I parked my car that night in the parking lot of one of the big stores along Wilshire. We came out of the theatre and we were walking back to the car. Two supposedly sophisticated adults. And we got ourselves so hyped up talking about the horror film that we'd seen and other horrors and the kind of crazy people that are wandering the streets and can strike at you from the dark, from any building front, any alley, they could be there. Chuck was fascinated with all that stuff. When we got to the lot, we saw a car parked right next to mine. There were only two cars on the whole lot, my car and this other car, and some kind of figure was sitting there, kind of slumped over sideways and just kind of staring. I said, oh Chuck, that guy looks like some kind of maniac to me. Chuck said, here are the possibilities. He could be one, dead. He could be a dead man, and we certainly don't want to get involved with that. And I said, no, I, I don't want to get involved with some dead guy. Two, he could be some kind of pervert or killer 
waiting for us to get into your car to strike. I said it's possible he could be. I know this sounds crazy but at that time of night after what we'd gone through, it seemed perfectly logical. Or three, he could be just an ordinary person waiting for his wife to come out of some place. But if you were an ordinary person, what are you doing in a parking lot, alone at three in the morning, I said. I don't know, Chuck, but I tell you one thing, we're taking the bus home tonight. That's the kind of stuff you'd do with Beaumont. I would never do things like that with other people. I'd just go and get in my car. But he made the drama out of everything and that's why people love to be with him. He brought just a walk home from a movie into the realm of the Twilight Zone. He utterly convinced me that if we went to that car, we would probably die. So not about this story as such, but a great recollection I think and... Whenever anyone speaks of Charles Beaumont, there always is that element to it that he was the lightning rod. He was the one in the group around which everything would revolve. Now, Charles Beaumont's original treatment for the jungle had the lead character returned from Africa, and there is a dinner being held for him by the Scientific Society, celebrating his achievements over there. But by the time it came to the screen, it appears to be a late-night board meeting where Richards meets with other representatives from the company, and one of the main themes of this episode comes up in conversation. I'm sure you've considered this aspect carefully, but uh, well, for my own curiosity, what about the natives? Natives? What about them, sir? Oh, what's their attitude? How are they reacting? Well, as far as I know... Well, they're... the Kikuyu are a violent people... They resent the loss of their homes. They resent the enterprise, even though they're going to benefit from it eventually. They resent us. But I doubt if they'll cause any serious disturbance. Except for Uchawi. Uchawi? Uh, witchcraft. Uh. <laughs> well, you see, a number of the shamans have decided to put a curse on everyone connected with the enterprise effective upon the decision to go ahead with the project, that is. And what sort of a curse, Mr. Richards? The usual. A slow, painful death. <laughs> now, wait a minute, gentlemen. I assure you there's nothing the least bit funny about Uchawi. Oh, you're not serious. I am. I've seen it work. I have seen healthy men sicken and die within ten minutes of the time set by the witch doctors who cursed them. Healthy men. And women. They weren't touched. They weren't poisoned, they weren't harmed in any way, they just died. With this version being based in New York, we never actually meet the indigenous people of the areas that have been devastated by this development. And we never meet the witch doctors or shaman who make these threats. But in the original story, we often hear the conversations between Austin and these people in his remembrances. A figure crouched beside him, a man, unbelievably old and tiny, sharp little bones jutting into loose flesh like pins, skin cross-hatched with a pattern of white paint, chalky as the substance some widows of the tribes wore for a year after the death of their mates. His mouth was pulled into his shape, not quite a smile, but resembling a smile. It revealed hardened toothless gums. The old man laughed suddenly, 
The amulet around his chicken neck bobbled. Then he stopped laughing and stared at Austin. We have been waiting, he said softly. Austin started at the perfect English. He had not heard English for a long time, and now coming from this little man, perhaps Bokawa had learned it. Why not? Walk with me, Mr. Austin. He followed the ancient shaman dumbly, not having the slightest idea why he was doing so. Austin knew suddenly that he had not come to this place of his own accord. He had been summoned. The old man held a hyena's tail in his right hand. He waved this and a slight wind seemed to come up, throwing the flames of the fire into a neurotic dance. You are not convinced even now, Mr. Austin. You have seen suffering and death, but you are not convinced, Bokawa sighed. I will try one last time. He squatted on the smooth floor. When you first came to our country and spoke your plans, I told you even then what must happen. I told you that this city must not be. I told you that my people would fight as your people would fight if we were to come to your land and build jungles. But you understand nothing of what I said. He did not accuse. The voice was expressionless. Now Mumbara lies silent and dead beneath you, and still you do not wish to understand. What must we do, Mr. Austin? How shall we go about proving to you that this Mumbara of yours will always be silent and dead? That your people will never walk through it? In that late night boardroom meeting, the men from the company all scoff at the ridiculousness of the threats made by the shaman. They don't believe in magic, but then Richard goes around the room pointing out that in fact, they do. They all have superstitions or beliefs that are only degrees removed from those of the shaman. In the short story, Richard Austin ponders whether the magic of the shaman is merely just the same science of Western civilization, just interpreted in a different way. The Twilight Zone is that middle ground between science and superstition, so, so let's put the science aside for one moment and look at the superstition. Richards points out in this scene that one of the board members is carrying a lucky rabbit's foot, and when you dig into why this small part of a dead animal is supposed to be lucky, you actually find that it's a huge subject that has various rules to it depending on the culture. For example, in Celtic culture, the foot is only lucky under certain circumstances. For example, the rabbit would need to be killed in a particular place or by a particular person with particular attributes like a cross-eyed man. In North American culture, the foot must be the left hind foot of the rabbit and the rabbit must have been shot or otherwise captured in a cemetery, which sounds simple enough but then the third condition becomes a bit more complicated. The third condition dictates that not any left hind foot of a rabbit shot in a cemetery will do. The phase of the moon is also important, and some say that the rabbit must be taken in the full moon, while others hold that the rabbit must be taken in the new moon. And some sources say that the rabbit must be taken on a Friday, or a rainy Friday, or Friday the 13th, 
and some say that the rabbit should be shot with a silver bullet, and others will say that the foot must be cut off while the rabbit's still alive. Not very lucky for the rabbit. And those are just a couple of several more pieces of folklore that explain the relevance of the rabbit's foot. Richards also points out that one of the board members often knocks on wood and that too is something that I hear all the time in day-to-day -day life and often people will either touch wood or in the absence of wood, touch their own head. Now in Britain the phrase is more touch wood, whereas I believe in America the phrase is knock on wood. And this is supposed to be a safeguard against tempting fate after making a comment that could turn out badly for you if it comes true. Or sometimes it's done after making a comment about something that would turn out to be favourable. One possible reason for doing it comes from German folklore that says that supernatural beings live inside trees, so touching wood invites protection from them. Now folklore is a fascinating subject, but I think one of the most interesting things about it is how these superstitions have seemingly evolved in different cultures independently of each other. Perhaps there's been some crossover on the borders, so each one is a little different, but you know, that's a subject all of its own. What's this? That, my dear Chad, is Kipitu. A protective amulet. Where did it come from? Doris. And since this is a lion's tooth, I gather I'm being protected from lions. In uh, New York City? Yeah. Well, you gotta admit they're doing a fine job. <laughs> I'm sure this is the way Doris looks at it. Well, what are you gonna do about Doris? I don't know. She's sick, isn't she? So are half of the people in this city. My wife carries a lion's tooth, the president of the company carries a rabbit's foot. It's all the same thing. It's all the same rotten disease. So if he has the protective lion tooth with him, what does that mean for her? I guess we'll find out. So let's talk about our leading man, John Denner. He's already a main player in one of my favourite Twilight Zones, The Lonely. And we'll see him again in Mr. Garrity in the Graves. And he has this naturally distinguished air about him. And in these two Twilight Zones so far, he's very serious, but he does that well. And I think he really grounds these subjects that, in the wrong hands, could be seen as being a bit silly. In Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, he says, I recall Bill telling me that I had the sort of character that had to believe that voodoo stuff I was instructed not to smile during the entire film. Take everything serious. I guess it was my saturnine face that cinched it for me. The real challenge was to stay within the marks. They had me run through a park and it was late at night. The sun had set so they placed these markers in the air so I would run within the view of the camera. My job was to keep looking behind me because something was chasing me through the park. I had difficulty looking behind me and down in front of me to see the markers without Bill shouting for me to stop and do another take. The camera was moving alongside me as I ran, but I kept getting out of range. I couldn't look at the markers and look behind me at the same time. 
As I recall, we spent quite a while getting the runs through, and I got home way after midnight. Now, John Denner really was a worker, with almost 300 credits to his name, which spanned from the early 40s to the late 80s. He just never stopped, which is all the more impressive considering that acting wasn't his first job. He didn't start as a child or even in his teens. He was originally an animator for Walt Disney and didn't start acting until his mid-twenties. Steve Rubin in the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia mentions that he appeared in 12 episodes of Gunsmoke, playing a different character in each. I really enjoy John Denner in this and in The Lonely, and like I said, he does a great job of keeping the fantastic grounded, and he's the master of that off-screen fixed stare, as if there's a world of turmoil going on in his head, but he won't let it come out because he does have that distinguished air about him. So after a drink with his friend Chad, Richards gets in his car to drive home. And when he comes out of the bar, we are immediately shown this street. Now, in unlocking the door to a television classic, Martin Grams Jr. says that this is the same studio lot that was used in One for the Angels when Lou Bookman makes his pitch to Mr. Death. And what a great illustration this is of the talent of the people in the business and the people who made these shows. It's more than just the fact that that one was set in the day and this one is shot at night. In One for the Angels, it's dressed as that very working class American neighborhood with kids playing in the street and everyone knows each other. But when Alan Richards steps out of that bar and we get this high long shot of the street, what a wonderful shot that is. It shows this space, the emptiness that Richards is going to have to navigate when his car fails to start and he has to make his own way home. And it reminds me of one of my favourite directors, Dario Argento's movie called Deep Red, which was obviously made after this, but he too uses these great spacious shots of the city, deserted at night, save for a couple of characters. And it simultaneously shows the beauty of the city, but also builds that foreboding atmosphere. So while Richards has to get out of his car to navigate this concrete jungle, his literary counterpart has to navigate the city he himself built at the expense of the jungle. And Charles Beaumont describes it like this. The towers of Mombara loomed suddenly to Austin, more unreal and acronistic than the tribal rites from which he had just come. Stalagmites of crystal pushing up to the night sky that bent above them. Little squares and diamonds and circles of metal and stone. Office buildings, apartments, housing units, hat stores and machine factories and restaurants. And cobwebbing among them. All these blind and empty shells, the walkways, like coloured ribbons, like infinitely long reptiles, sleeping now, dead, still. Or were they only waiting? as he wanted to believe. At this point in the Twilight Zone episode, it's been going on for about nine or 10 minutes, 
and there's still a good 15 minutes to go. And it's here that I think Beaumont has been very shrewd in his adaptation of the story. He slimmed down the backstory and the reason why all this is happening into a lean 10 minutes that tells us all we need to know, which gives us the best part of 15 minutes to build suspense. So there is a level of trust here that he has to have in the director to use that time and space and to build that suspense and bring the atmosphere. And I have to applaud William Claxton here for his presentation of these scenes, the sense of space. And as someone with a love for America and Americana, I adore this lot, which looks great, you know? It might be fabricated, but it looks fantastic. And the details like the old fashioned phone box, it really is a treat for the eyes. But also there's a great consideration for the audio experience too, the use of silence. So we hear every footstep and even the most normal everyday sound now becomes quite sinister. As Richards tries to navigate the city, he gets into a cab and the cabbie inexplicably just dies when he stops at a light. And when Richards gets out, the not so normal everyday sounds for this part of the world start to creep in too. The sounds of jungle wildlife close, but not close enough to see and the sound of drums. But is it just him who hears it? Where's that sound coming from? What sound was that? It was drums. Uh, I don't hear no drums. Listen. You mean to tell me you can't hear that? These wide shots of Richard running through the city are just beautiful. I, I adore them. And... There is a suggestion in this that these sounds are only in his own head and likewise his literary counterpart is too trying to make his way home in a city that may not be all it seems. He had no difficulty finding his way. It was all too fresh even now. The hours of planning every small curve and design, carefully leaving no artistic holes or useless places. He could have walked it blindfolded. But when he passed the food dispensary and turned the corner, he found that it did not lead to the copter park as it should have. There were buildings there, but they were not the ones they ought to have been, or else he'd turned the wrong. He retraced his steps to the point where he had gone left. The food dispensary was nowhere in sight. Instead, he found himself looking at the general chemistry building. Austin paused and wiped his forehead 
The excitement, of course. It had clouded his mind for a moment, making him lose his way. He began walking. Warm perspiration coursed across his body, turning his suit dark wet, staining his jacket. He passed the food dispensary. Austin clenched his fists. It was impossible that he could have made a complete circle. He had built this city. He knew it intimately. He had walked through it without even thinking of direction in the half stages of construction and never taken a wrong step. How could he be lost? So there is this suggestion in the story that perhaps the city is changing around him, causing him to get lost. Although maybe it's just the disorientation that he's experiencing because of his own anxiety. And could it be that here in our Twilight Zone episode, that Richards is just imagining these sounds as they build up, causing him to panic more and more? Perhaps. But as is often the case in the Twilight Zone, there is usually some detail that shows what our lead character has experienced did actually happen. Some detail, some item, some little twist. And this time... It's a killer, literally. Here, both our literary lead, Richard Austin, and our episode lead, Alan Richards, get home and discover the same thing. He stood by the door, listening to his heart rattle crazily in his chest. He opened the door. The apartment was calm, silent. The furniture sat functionally on the silky white rug, black, thin-legged chairs and tables. Austin started to laugh, carefully checked himself. He knew he probably would not be able to stop. He thought strongly about the men who would come to Mambara in the morning. He thought of the city teeming with life, of the daylight streaming onto the streets of people, the shops, the churches, the schools. His work. His dream. He walked across the rug to the bedroom door. It was slightly ajar. He pushed it, went inside, closed it softly. Mag, he whispered. Mag. There was a noise. A low, throaty rumble. Not of anger, of warning. Richard Austin came close to the bed adjusted his eyes to the black light. Then he screamed. It was the first time he had ever watched a lion feeding. What a fantastic ending. You know, that shot of the lion coming down from the bed and jumping over onto the camera. And one of the last entries in the Twilight Zone encyclopedia is about this lion, whose name was Zomba. Steve Rubin writes, Real life name of the African lion that appears on the bed in the Manhattan apartment of Alan Richard in the jungle. A revenge entity from an African shaman. Zomba was supplied by Nature's Haven Wild Animal Rentals and supervised by its proprietor, exotic animal trainer, Ralph Helfer. And he goes on to say that Zomba had been an orphaned African lion cub named after the Zambezi River in Zambia. 
It's clear that there's a strong environmental undertone in this story, more so in the original short story, in that often the main character remembers these conversations he has with the tribal leader several times throughout. And that's very explicit because he's actually saying that. Here, it's still heavily implied in the beginning and mentioned, so it is quite ahead of its time with these concerns and this acknowledgement of the destruction of the natural world and the displacement of indigenous peoples, all in the name of progress. So in the television version, it's here, but the focus is shifted a little more towards this aspect of superstition and how while we might think ourselves so very civilized, actually, we still let these superstitions creep into our day-to-day -day life to the point where we don't really think about them. We just walk around ladders instead of going under them. Of course, that's common sense, so you don't get something dropped on you. But is it just because of that? Or is it because there's also this superstitious element to it? The short story and the episode itself do coexist quite nicely. In the story, Charles Beaumont brings the city to the jungle, and on television, he brings the jungle to the city. Both are valid. The futuristic metropolis in the heart of Africa, which is designed to be welcoming and cater to human life, becomes the opposite of that. Likewise, the familiar surroundings of the city in the episode becomes filled with foreboding as the jungle intrudes on it. I've often said how I don't watch ahead in the Twilight Zone, so it's been a long time since I've seen this one and I found it to be quite a joy to rediscover it. It's a simple tale underpinned by these musings on the environment and superstition, but then it's given this room to breathe and build the atmosphere. The use of space and silence and sound is masterful, and that final 15 minutes is as suspenseful as anything we've seen in the show so far. And it's all sold to us by this believable, solid central performance from John Denner, who actually brings a lot of subtlety to what some might say is just him being his stoic and distinguished self. But I can see that conflict in him. He simultaneously believes all of this stuff, but also rejects it. He tries to go with the civilized view because he's a man of business and boardrooms when he should have been going with what he believes on this one. So a great return to the Twilight Zone for Charles Beaumont. And if Still Valley maybe took this great season three run slightly off track, I think the jungle puts it right back where it belongs. <laughs> Some superstitions kept alive by the long night of ignorance have their own special power. You'll hear of it through a jungle grapevine in a remote corner of the Twilight Zone. Now, before I read some listener emails, I just want to draw your attention to something on the twilightzonepodcast.com. Now, some of you might remember that I used to have a website called the Twilight Zone Network, and my plan with that was to 
have the Twilight Zone podcast on it, uh, some written things about the Twilight Zone and that kind of thing. But then time became an issue and I, I couldn't really do it. But one of the things I quite wanted to do on it was maybe have other related podcasts on there, not necessarily done by me. And although I changed the site back to the twilightzonepodcast.com, I just didn't have the time to kind of run a network in that way. There's actually a new podcast on the twilightzonepodcast.com, so it is kind of more in line with what I originally planned for that website. And that podcast is called The Outer Limits Podcast. And it's not done by me, but it is done by a good friend of the show and a good supporter, Victor Gamboa. And um, at time of recording this, he's done about three episodes. And, you know, it's really cool. I think podcasting, when you're first learning the ropes, it's quite a steep learning curve. And there's always a million things to try and remember. But you can really see that Victor's sitting down and taking the time to learn his craft. So each time he does an episode, it gets better and better and better. And by the third episode, it's sounding really great. So, you know, there's a million Twilight Zone podcasts out there now, but nobody's done The Outer Limits until now. And Victor's doing it. And I'm so glad that he's chosen to be on the twilightzonepodcast.com with his new podcast. So go and check it out and enjoy it. I think uh, I think it's a great project and I'm looking forward to watching along with Victor as he goes through the series. So let's have a read of some listener emails in submitted for your approval. had an email from longtime friend of the show Tony and he says hi Tom your last episode of the Twilight Zone podcast struck a chord with me I am a US Army veteran and a history teacher with academic degrees in the field my area of expertise and personal passion is the US Civil War era unlike Mr. Sailing I did not see combat action like Mr. Sailing I believe that most soldiers in the US armed forces are men with a moral compass. Each has a boundary that their profession may compel them to cross, but their character resists. I believe this applies to soldiers of other like-minded societies as well. Surely patriotism is a powerful motivator for a soldier, but I and Mr. Sailing, gathered from his life work, understand that love of country has its limits, especially if such patriotic fervor contradicts the very principles of your nation's creed. Though Still Valley is a work of fiction, Matters of God were taken seriously in the religiously sensitive stances taken by Civil War Americans. This is scarcely uncommon in US history. Nearly all matters of intense debate ultimately get draped in religious terminology by the opposing sides. To me, the choice made by the Confederate officer was believable based on the two points I made. Your last episode of Lost in the Omniverse, and uh, Tony's talking about a superhero podcast that I do. He says, your last episode of Lost in the Omniverse has a serendipitous connection with the Still Valley episode. Your discussion with Chris Clayton about Captain America's good nature versus patriotism is relevant here. 
Captain America was a soldier and he made decisions that were guided by his moral compass, rather than orders from on high. You appropriately commented that patriotism, pushed too far, can become quite ugly and destructive. Captain America is patriotic, but with the limitations that a good nature provides. He is good because he was born and or raised that way. He could have been of another nationality or ethnicity and still have been superhero good. Mr. Sailing clearly loved his country. In doing so, he saw that our nation had flaws that citizens like himself needed to address. Comic book superheroes like myths of old can motivate our better halves to chase the dream of perhaps becoming what we should be. Wow, somehow you were able to present ideas that connected the US Civil War, a Confederate officer's action in a fictional tale, Mr. Rod Sailing's life, Captain America, and a high school teacher from Brooklyn, New York. What kind of witchcraft are you practicing? Thanks, Tom. Tony from Brooklyn. Well, thank you, Tony. That's, uh, I'd like to say that that was completely on purpose, and of course it was, but no. Uh, seriously, though, it's always interesting talking about things that are so personal to America. Um, you know, I have a great love of the country, like, like I've always said. I mean, that first came from growing up watching entertainment from America. And then to go there and, and live in America and fall in love with the country in many different ways and, and the people I've met. It's been a great thing and I, and I always love going back. But when it comes to things like history and politics, you know, I, I, I'm not that clued up on it. So it's always interesting trying to comment on things like that in the show because I don't want to get things too wrong or offend anyone if I'm sort of... Uh, speaking out of turn about anything in particular but you know hopefully that's not the case and if I ever do anyone who's listening please know that it's never with any intent um, but thank you Tony it's uh, it's always good to hear from you okay I had a message on the Twilight Zone podcast website from Thief and he says I love your podcast but I must take issue with your description of Gary Merrill as a journeyman actor he was a star on the stage in addition to being in one of the greatest films of all time, All About Eve. He was married to Betty Davis and had a long affair with Rita Hayworth. He's a major, major figure over here. Well, thank you, Fief. I, um, I have to say, I apologise if you feel that I undersold Gary Merrill in that episode. I think it probably comes from a couple of things. I mean... First off, I don't think he, he did anything particularly special in that episode. Like I said in the review, I think, you know, he was fine. A lot of things in the episode were fine, but it was probably one of the lower tier Twilight Zones for me. But if, like you say, he is a major, major figure over there, I think, you know, it's probably not the first time I've, I've undersold someone on the podcast, and it probably won't be the last. You know, the, that era, the Twilight Zone era... I would say I'm, I'm not particularly an expert on the um, the actors of the time, the films of the time. You know, if you talk to me about something like 70s and 80s horror movies, then I would consider myself to be very knowledgeable in that subject. But when I come to a Twilight Zone, I am really coming to it anew. Obviously, there's some um, residual memory of, of watching most of these episodes at some point in my life. And there are going to be stars that stick out. But I think I come to it and, and I research it. 
What I tend to do is I'll look down their list of credits and see what look jumps out at me, you know, and admittedly, a lot of the, the films of that era that many people will consider be, to be classics uh, don't mean that much to me because I don't know them. And while I do try and get a, an idea of who a person is and what their stature is, so sometimes, I, admittedly, I think I probably will undersell uh, certain actors. I mean, again, like I said in my email to you, I think it's one of the perils of a Brit doing this show as well. You know, I think a lot of actors that are big names in the US didn't necessarily travel over here as much or aren't as well known over here. It's the same with everything, really, and, and that's probably both ways over the Atlantic. You know, I remember living in America and being privy to uh, a conversation people were having about old sitcoms and they were talking about oh wasn't the honeymoon as great or you know that kind of thing and the honeymooners means nothing to me you know um, and, and I'm just picking that out as an example there's a few other things but you know so if you if you feel you have to take issue with it then I apologize if it's offended you in any way but that's really not the intention the, the thing is, I, I do research, but it only goes so far. It does take a lot of time to put these together, so I have to kind of draw a line somewhere. Sometimes sometimes things will jump out and I'll go down the rabbit hole for a bit and, and try and find out a bit more about that person. But in the case of Gary Merrill, you know, yes, there were, you know, his, his sort of marriage situation and his affair and so on. But I think as an actor because he didn't really jump out in the show to me and I looked down his list and maybe not being that knowledgeable about films of that time like All About Eve, um, nothing really jumped out. So the thing is about this show, and I hope I've always um, given that impression, is if I do do that and undersell an actor or something in that way, I'm always happy for someone to write in and say, you know what, Tom, I listened to the show and you... You spoke about Gary Merrill. Well, actually, there's a bit more to him than that. And this is what it is. And, you know, tell us a bit about him. I'm always happy to read that that kind of stuff. So, uh, so anyway, thank you, Fief. Okay, quick one from Paul. He says, Hi, Tom. Congratulations on the consistently high quality of the Twilight Zone podcast. I love to listen to it on my metro ride into work, especially on these long, dark winter mornings, which seem to fit the Twilight Zone so well. My experience of growing up with the Twilight Zone seems very similar to yours. I was born in Sunderland in the northeast of England and I used to force myself to stay awake to watch those late night double bills of the Twilight Zone in the early 80s, first on BBC Two, then later on Channel 4. I had a portable TV with a built-in cassette player that could record sound directly from the television and I used to tape episodes of the Twilight Zone to listen back to later. In the dark, of course, wearing headphones. It's surprising how well some of those episodes hold up in audio-only form. And he says, good luck with the future of the Twilight Zone podcast. You keep recording them and I'll keep listening. All the best, Paul. Well, thank you, Paul. I think a lot of people of our generation did that. I remember recording uh, shows off the TV onto tape and listening to them. You know, we had to try and keep hold of those things the best way we could because we didn't know whether they'd be back on again. So thank you, man. Now, if you remember in the um, episode where I discussed the Twilight Zone play in London, I was joined for a portion of that in the bar afterwards by a gentleman 
by the name of James and he wrote to me after the show and he said, greetings from Scotland, I arrived back home for the holidays and I'm looking forward to ending the year with friends and family. And I've finally found the time to listen to the latest episode of the Twilight Zone podcast. Firstly, let me say once again that it was an absolute pleasure and privilege to meet you and journey through the Twilight Zone with you in London. Regardless of my strong opinions on the show, it was so special to see it brought to life on stage. On reflection, the imagery was spectacular and offered a real glimpse of what a staged Twilight Zone could be. The visual tone of the production alone was worth the price of admission and the credit to the team behind it. As we discussed, I felt the heart of the Twilight Zone was somewhat lacking in performances and storytelling. The pace, flow and movement of the staging made me feel like I was falling through a Twilight Zone dream, and as a dream, it was special. However, on this occasion, the filter didn't allow for complete immersion into the emotional truth of what the series is. In conclusion, it's been a strong year for the Twilight Zone, with the new encyclopedia, the stage show and new surrounding the CBS 2018 production. All of this attention and effort can only bring a spotlight to the genius that is the original TV show and the work of Mr. Sailing. At this point, I also want to thank you for your professionalism, commitment and dedication to carrying the torch via your podcast. You're there for the show and us all, year in, year out, and do us all proud. I'm sure I speak for everyone when I congratulate you and thank you for all your efforts. Best, James. Well, thank you, James. You know, it was a real pleasure to meet you too. And as I said in that show, I don't really know anyone in general life who watches The Twilight Zone. So to be able to sit down afterwards and not only talk about the play, but to talk Twilight Zone, that really was great. So I really enjoyed that too. I'll I'll talk about the play a little bit more after I read this next email. But thanks for getting in touch again, James. Now, another gentleman called James also wrote in about the Twilight Zone play, different guy. I'm glad he did this because I really wanted to hear from other people who'd seen the play and hear what they think. So uh, let's hear what this uh, other James has to say, James Grime. And he says, hi, Tom. I've only recently started listening to the podcast, but I've enjoyed catching up with the episodes. I like your late night style and the episode trivia. Like yourself, I am a British fan of the Twilight Zone. And I'm sorry to say, I don't know any other fans. So it was an unexpected treat when I heard that a Twilight Zone play will be on stage in London. I thought the Twilight Zone would be perfect for a stage adaptation, as many of the episodes have a stagey feel, being dialogue heavy, with only a couple of actors in fairly contained locations. I was able to buy tickets for opening night, and in short, I liked it, with some reservations. So I was very interested to hear your views on the play and was pleased to hear we largely agreed. I thought the actors were great in their multiple roles. It must certainly have been a challenge for them to learn all that dense sailing dialogue and the play was well directed and impressively choreographed. Like yourself, I was expecting something like the Twilight Zone movie for stories maybe with a connecting device. A funny one, a sentimental one, a spooky one and so on. Maybe we would get a gremlin on the wing of the plane again. So I was delighted that we didn't get that. Instead, we got a mashup of episodes, boiled down to essential setups and payoffs. I thought this was a more creative approach, and I'm glad of it, but it also came with its own drawbacks. I was slightly surprised by their choice of episodes to include. They did not go with anything I consider to be top 10 Twilight Zone. 
I would say the elements used from To Save Man and I of the Beholder were little more than cameos. I thought opening with Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up worked very well, as it's a fun but very Twilight Zone episode to start with, and set the tone very well. However, I was surprised that the episodes like Nightmare as a Child and Perchance to Dream featured so heavily. Those are not episodes I would have chosen, but of course everyone has their personal favourites. So picking episodes that pleases everyone is an impossible task. The drawback was that the mashup style did diminish the impact of the episode punchlines. Constantly moving between episodes meant that tension was not allowed to build, and when the punchline came, the play simply rolled on with the next scene. My friend, who is not a Twilight Zone fan, could not tell when the stories had ended. In contrast, the most successful part of the play was when the shelter was performed almost in its entirety. Here, the tension and impact was felt in full. Ultimately, I liked it, despite its flaws, but I think it's one for the fans. Best wishes, James. You know, I'm really glad you um, wrote in with that, James. You know, I, I came away from it, and i I done that podcast, and I was... I don't know, I, I didn't want to come away from it and feel like I was being too negative and ungrateful for, you know, th this great thing we've been given, a stage play in the UK of the Twilight Zone, when, you know, it's not even on the television. So I was a bit concerned that, that it came off as too negative, but at the end of the day, I've still got to be honest with the audience who listen to the Twilight Zone podcast, because... That's what I always do. Even if it doesn't go with popular opinion of an episode, I'll always try and give my own thoughts on it. So, you know, I did read a lot of reviews afterwards as well because I didn't read any beforehand. And the criticism that perhaps it didn't focus on the more human elements of the Twilight Zone and that although it was interesting and quite innovative to present it as this mashup of episodes it succeeded in some ways but also maybe a lot of the point of those things got lost and some of the twists like you said just sort of didn't have any impact because the play just kept moving on that was actually present in a lot of the reviews so you know like you i, I applaud them for trying that and they've focused on one area of the twilight zone it was just a shame perhaps they couldn't include that that sort of very human element of it somewhere down the line. But, you know, like you, I, I generally enjoyed it. And, um, you know, I'm grateful for it and I'm glad it's there. And I think there's probably a couple of weeks left on it uh, in London. And maybe it'll turn up in other places too. So thanks for writing in, James, and, uh, and giving us your views on the play. And for anyone who is interested in maybe an extended look at the play, I did an extra episode in as a Twilight Zone podcast Patreon, uh, looking at it in, in a bit more detail. But um, I think that's enough from me for now. So I just want to say thank you to the latest crop of iTunes reviews. I kind of lost track where I'm up to. So if I, uh, I'm thanking someone twice, then, you know, that's no bad thing, I guess. So thanks to Atom Moog. I think I might have thanked you last time, but if I didn't, thank you very much. Then we've got Dane B 75 and he talks about visiting Binghamton in his review, so thank you for that. Man Bat Data Vader, also uh, with a good review, and Shorty McBlewhair as well. And also thank you to Badge Dude, I know that's Steve from the UK, he's uh, 
spoke to me a bit on Facebook. Thanks for that, Steve. Appreciate it. And also a new review on US iTunes from Branches of Paper. So thank you for that, Katie. And thank you for all your support. You're one of the sort of backbones of the Twilight Zone supporters. So I appreciate that. So if you want to support the show in some way, then leaving an iTunes review is always appreciated. If you want to join the Facebook page, it's facebook.com slash Twilight Zone podcast. If you want to email me, you can email Tom at thetwilightzonepodcast.com. And if you want to support the show on Patreon and get bonus episodes and also Twilight Zone Aftermath, where I look at the 80s show and that's um, that's just started its new format with rotating guests. And the first one was really cool. And we'll be looking at the next one around the middle to late uh, January. So, so thanks to my current Patreon supporters. And you can go there if you want to check it out at patreon.com slash Twilight Zone podcast. So what's up next? Let's go over to Rod Serling to find out. And now, Mr. Serling. Next week on the Twilight Zone, we bring to the television cameras a most unique gentleman whose own very special brand of clownship has long ago become a milestone in American humor. Mr. Buster Keaton appears in Once Upon a Time, a script written especially for him by Richard Matheson. This one is wild, woolly, and most unpredictable. On the Twilight Zone next week, Mr. Buster Keaton in Once Upon a Time. Not criticism. Learn how. Write Better Mental Health, Box 3000, New York 1, New York.